time to get dosed. Welcome to Dosed, everybody. We are live. 1234 in Los Angeles on Tuesday, April 26th, here with Abby Martin and Duncan Trussell. Welcome to Dosed, everybody. Today I'm so excited to be talking with my friend and someone I've admired for a very long time, Duncan Trussell. You may have seen him on the Comedy Central series Drunk History. You may have seen him on Sci-Fi Network's Joe Rogan Questions Everything. You may have seen him on a multitude of other projects or his stand-up comedy, but one of the reasons I knew I had to have him on Dosed is because of his podcast, The Duncan Trussell Family Hour which is so deep, so mind-bending, and so enlightening, that audio from it was animated and turned into the unearthly hit Netflix series titled The Midnight Gospel. Beyond, beyond being a brilliant comedian and entertainer, Duncan has become known for his exploration and application of spirituality, Buddhism, meditation, and metaphysics, even working with the legendary Ram Dass, whose book Be Here Now has no doubt dosed millions of people worldwide. Duncan, just a few days ago I was on your amazing podcast, the Duncan yeah. Trussell Family Hour, and I'm super excited to have you on Dosed. Thank you so Thank much you for, for coming on. I'm so happy to be here. Duncan, I think to start this one off, the audience would love to hear, as would I, what's a big Dosed moment for you in your life that set you on the path you're on today? Well, I've had, uh, I'm lucky because I've had a lot, but <laughs> when you, when you were telling me that you were going to ask me that, I was thinking about what that would be. And, you know, one major turning point in my life was when I did ketamine therapy um, and had intermuscular, you know, they, they gave me intermuscular ketamine and, uh, you know, I, it was the most astounding experience I, I was lucky because the uh, psychiatrist who was working with me didn't really tell me what to expect. <laughs> and um, I, I can remember like having this, like just a vision of like a, a fire, a, a bonfire on the beach. And like Tim, I'm sitting with Tim Leary and he's like smiling and waving at me. And then I was just obliterated by the disassociative effect of the ketamine and you know basically just had this photographic memory slash dream slash vision i was back at the doctor's office the doctor who told me i had testicular cancer and it was like i was there and he was explaining it to me and then uh it was all of a sudden it was just like cancer was just growing through my body. Essentially the ketamine was sort of showing me this trauma, which is traumatic to be told you had cancer and it's a life-changing event, another dosed event. But uh, 
you know, mixed in with that, obviously, is being afraid to die. I'd sort of been secretly or not so secretly carrying around this like profound fear of death. And uh, so it was the weirdest thing. It was like death in this ketamine vision was approaching me as some kind of impenetrable wall that was just like, you know, in the movies when the hero gets stuck in the room where the walls are closing in, it was like that. This wall was just moving forward at a non-changing speed, just moving forward. And I knew it was death. I knew it represent, represented annihilation. And I was like trying to talk my way out of it. Like, <laughs> Let's talk like, about we- this. Yeah, like, wait, hold on. We should, like, is this really necessary, the whole death thing? (laughs) And right before it got to me, it was, you know, in that classic psychedelic voice, which isn't a voice, but it is. It's who knows what it is. I heard your fear of death is your love of life in reverse. And then the wall just, and that was the, uh, I know, it was this huge epiphany when I realized that, um, that that I just really loved life so much that I didn't want to die, and that it sort of, it showed me how I I could sort of alchemize that fear into something um, less uh, dense, I guess, and and more about the present moment instead of worrying over some future uh, event that we're all going to have to deal with eventually. Well, it's kind of a, a beautiful cyclical understanding and. Yeah, I mean, just the reverberations of a moment like that, like, are very profound, you know, and let's, let's go back to something that I feel like billions of people experience. And it is a very dosed thing, Duncan, and I know we've talked about this, but I I do want to talk about having a child and raising that child into the world, because it kind of fits into what you're talking about. I mean, obviously, the cycle of birth and rebirth and reproduction and of course, the pregnancy birth part of the process is incredibly primal and beautiful and makes you realize yeah. how you fit into that world. And suddenly you're observing everything that previously was through your ego becoming slightly expanded into another state where you're incorporating this other consciousness of creating and bringing another life into being in that full realization that you are nature. Everything is you. You are everything. But it's so much bigger than that too because every day it becomes something else and it's just continuing to evolve into something else that is so hard to fully grasp day to day yeah yeah well yeah my pregnancy was very hard (laughs) it it was brutal oh my god you got two of them man yeah two i've got i'm dealing with a lot of physiological stuff right now you know i still haven't gotten (laughs) That baby weight completely off yet, but I'm working on it. The uh, yeah, it's a it's a glimpse into something much bigger than you, the little I you, and it shows you. It's like a little peek into uh, timelessness, and um, I, I love it. I love how it it renders you to some degree insignificant. Uh, in the grand scheme of things. And, and also it like forces you to not be quite so selfish. You know, you can't, you, you, it's hard to pull off selfishness when you've got kids, you know? And, and uh, it's, so I love that because you're sort of forced to do these great experiments and not being so self-absorbed. 
I remember. I mean, you can be self-absorbed, but it's yeah. not going to work out for you or the kids. Right. Yeah. And sadly, a lot of people don't seem to actually incorporate that fundamental shift that you're talking about. Uh, but I remember you telling me something that stuck with me when I think you had right before you had your second and you just said they've been here before. Right. I mean, yeah. like when you look into the eyes of a baby, of a child formulating what this is that they that they've been brought into, it's this really I mean, it is kind of like a tired adage, but it's so true that these are fucking old souls and there is some ancient wisdom that they bring to us. Yeah. Yeah. It's uh, there. You know, we were we were born for better, or for worse, into a very materialist uh time period people things that are unquantifiable uh right now are sort of disregarded as being illusion or wishful thinking or something like that so you know when you're around a new being a new body that you do you do see you and especially in the actual experience of like watching my wife give birth something astounding comes into the room and something that we have yet to quantify scientifically that seems to fly in the face of all the standard ways that we think about life. Uh, it's the same thing that happens when someone dies. When you're around someone dying, it's like something opens up or you have this sense of like, oh, I remember this. I know what this is, but I don't remember it at all. And yeah. And then of course, when you're you when you're hanging out with these beings and you realize oh they're fully sentient they just can't talk very well and they can't control their bodies yet <laughs> you know what i mean but they're certainly not dumb they're they're fully there you know they just don't they don't know how to talk but there's an awareness there there is a a a, a personality there already baked in that makes one think of reincarnation or uh, you know the eternal nature of consciousness and then there's something so weird about meeting someone who's like 50 that acts like they're fucking five or meeting like a 10 year old that you think has lived a million lives it, it's yeah. so fascinating it's why yeah i remember when i was in college i went to india and i had I ran into this anthropologist who was studying these, um, they're called tulkus in Tibetan Buddhism. They're, it's like the kids who the monks go and like find using like or oracles and all kinds of like strange methods that are the reincarnation of deceased um, uh, teachers, uh, tulkus. Uh, so yeah, and he was saying like he was hanging out with this, I don't know, 12 year old and he said it was like being with a 50 year old like it was not a kid that was an adult in a kid's body and how crazy like he was just you could just see how he was he couldn't wrap his head around it you know from a western perspective he was and he was trying to like make sense of it but he was astounded by his encounters with these people yeah i mean that's super trippy and it really is it is so true and it happens no matter where you go that you you encounter these kind of old souls that it's kind of inexplicable i mean my son is almost two years old and seeing him hearing him like form language and adopting communication is the most surreal and fantastic experience i've ever had 
and seen him become who he is that he yes he's an extension of me and Mike but he's so much bigger than that and it gives me this kind of renewed purpose and optimism and just purity of life and everything small and beautiful that life has to offer and it's so incredibly profound Duncan and then it, it's coupled with this realization that this is how it's going to be until I die that it's no longer me living my life it's me living life through his experiences and milestones and that time slips away so quickly, right? That yeah. everything becomes not only this march towards death, but a race against time. And I don't know if you're feeling this way too, but the time-space continuum feels completely shattered, particularly <laughs> as COVID hit. And I think with the birth of my son, and I, I, I feel like it's the same no matter who I'm talking to, regardless of their circumstances. Yeah, yeah. The I know what you're talking about, the the sense of time accelerating um, that a lot of people have as they get older. And especially these days, I love the theories on it. Um, my favorite being that, uh, you know, the Ray Kurzweil, Terrence McKenna, they've all sort of theorized that there's this event that we're approaching that you know it has a lot of different names some people call it the apocalypse some call it the singularity i think some people call it the omega point but basically like we're being inhaled into this event like like something stuck in a whirlpool or something the, the whirlpool is time and we're like stuck in that and the closer we get to the event the faster things speed up as you know the more acceleration we get so this is one of the most hilarious ways of explaining why <laughs> things are going faster. But it could just be a product of age. It could, who knows what it is? But um, yeah, I know, I know what you mean. There's a, uh, I think there's a real art to not getting too caught up in all of that because you know I, I was jumping on the trampoline with my oldest and. I'm looking at him and I'm thinking, oh, I'm, I'm getting old and you're going to get old one day too. And we're all going to die. And I, and, and then I realized like, what the fuck's wrong with me? Like I'm projecting all of this onto someone who's just jumping on the trampoline. <laughs> you know what I mean? He has no idea his dad is going into some existential huge state. So um, when that's, I think that's the other really cool thing about kids is they invite you to just drop into the present moment totally. and forget the whole story and just be there with them. That's fun if you can pull it off. Totally. No, that's that's the best part, right? That's the best part is letting go and experiencing just everything that they experience real time. Yeah. The adventure of discovering things like balloons and flowers. Yes, that's what I'm talking about. You know, yeah. what, you know what plane I'm on. I mean, it, it is weird, like the sameness of of the day and the Groundhog Day nature, at least at the beginning of COVID. But I guess that feeling never stopped where I do feel like every day um, the time really does fly by. And I, I don't know if it's just because of centering everything around a kid or not, but it, it is strange. And I don't know if it's because the day used to be more broken up. You would think that as you have more time just at home, the days would seem mm -hmm. longer, but it it's not that at all, but maybe we are just going headfirst into the Kali Yuga um, <laughs> mode. You know, maybe it's just because these kids, they are, you know, they they change 
in profound mm. ways from week to week. It's like they've gotten a new operating system upgrade every like all of a sudden like they are walking or you know what i mean like they weren't walking now they are and then they're talking and then suddenly they're not just like babbling they're forming sentences and then suddenly the sentences that are coming out of their mouth are not just things they've learned from you but stuff (laughs) they've picked up from kids at preschool or you know now they're getting that now their own life is happening i think that you know as an adult you look in the mirror and you're you you're aging, but it's happening so slowly mm-hmm. compared to how quickly a, a child is growing. So maybe that's what it is. Is it just like you have a, a new kind of way of gauging the flow of time that wasn't there before? Yeah, absolutely. And then there's this other notion of this kind of depth of understanding that comes with parenthood of like our parents and the sacrifices they made, but also like this fallibility and yeah. vulnerability that comes along with the people that I put on this pedestal as like wise sages that really yeah. are just me. They're just older versions of all of us with the same faults and neurotic habits and idiosyncrasies. And yeah. and then and then you take a step back from that and you're like, holy fuck, this is why the world is the way it is. Like we all can't get out of our own way. We all repeat the same patterns and problems and we're trapped into our own manic, paranoid, selfish states. And and of course, of course we are, right? Because it's easier. Like this brute, harsh, short-sighted nature of it all, like it's easier, man. It's easier to kill people and leave them to die than it is to include them in some sort of collective uh, society and feed and house them. It's easier, right? It's easier to be a cog in the machine than it is to reimagine and recreate and re-envision something better. Yeah. And, like, and at our core, we're just these kind of beastly evolved primates who wear clothes and do math and make these big structures. But at the end of the day, we revert back to that, like you said, the total breakdown of civilization with murder and rape and then and then there's the collective madness of war, right, which is this all-encompassing state that just strips entire civilizations of empathy and logic and humanity. And it just fascinates me that despite all the technological advancements and achievements, it is almost meaningless when we can still de-evolve into this barbaric and illogical state. Like, why can't we do better? Why mm-hmm. are we still stuck here? Well, you know, I mean... I think there's a, uh, that's what's so, the question's great. There's a tr- million different answers. Socioeconomic answers, epigenetic answers. Uh, but I mean, I think for, if one one lens to look at it, let's just boil it all down to suffering. People are suffering. When people are in pain, they tend to make rotten decisions when it comes to how they're going to treat people around them. And so, you know, from one thing you could, I think it's a safe it's a safe bet that war is a result of collective suffering and because I don't think that it would be possible to get people to become soldiers and kill for super wealthy people uh if they were really happy or if they had their needs met. I don't think it would work anymore. The whole thing would, the whole thing would fall apart. So I would guess probably a lot of it has to do with the way we think about the way we think we can like 
fix our individual suffering. And if you get really confused about that, then I, you might end up, you know, part of a very violent orchestrated movement and, and, and think that everything you're doing makes sense. But, you know, because the other piece of the puzzle is um, you have to really develop the ability to create an other, right? Like that's another part of it. Like it's, it, it would be really hard to convince like any member of any country to just start attacking members of their own country. Right. You, but somehow you could, you could convince groups of people to attack other people in other countries. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, yeah. like, and all you have to do is say, well, that's another country. Like those people over there are different than us. Yes. They look exactly like us. They're bipedal wingless hominids. And yes, they are wearing similar clothes. And yes, they seem to watch the same TV and they seem to want the same things. They want shelter and food. They like music. They, they want to be safe, but they're not us. Okay. They're actually completely different. And the only solution is to kill them. And so this is how you pull off war. Because if, you know, the, just the basic fundamental reality that we're all kind of the same person going through a multitude of different life experiences, that's not the first thing you're going to hear like a drill sergeant saying. <laughs> no, in fact, what do, what do they say, Mike, when you step off the the van? It's like you have no mother or whatever, you know, no father. <laughs> what does it say? I don't remember that. Really? Oh um, my god! I th- my dad like told me that a million times. Like when like like in boot camp, it's just like you are fucking nobody. Like there's they do like do a, a lot of uh, chants about killing, like left, right, left, right, left, right. Kill is a popular oh, one. Yikes. Yeah, yeah. You got to get them to. You got to get them trained to kill. I mean, that's their whole. That's a, at least some of their. A lot of them. That's their main job. And to pull that off, you have to really sort of erase a lot of, I think, very human qualities from the neurological hard drive so i you know the whole war thing is i think a, a, a result of ignorance mm-hmm. and, that, and the ignorance causes a, the, the suffering that leads to war if i had to like roll the dice on what it is yeah and it's interesting too because it's like this stripping of your individuality but then it's for like the worst reasons instead of like we are part of this collective it's like you are part of us <laughs> you do what you're told now like you are nothing you're just a fucking grunt uh, well, is it killing machine? Like they do that. What's curious about it is they do teach you that you're no longer an right. I, but right. a we. But that we, it, its circumference is limited to whatever particular military division you're in. You you can't spread <laughs> it out further than that, or the whole thing fucks up. Because then it's you know what I mean. You can't be like Marines are. Marines are killing machines. We're designed to kill other Marines. <laughs> that. Wouldn't work. It has to be. We're designed to kill out there. And yeah. So that's, but you do, so you do get the dissolution of the identity, but I, that gets sort of poured into this like ice cube tray that represents whatever the particular tribe you're in. And then there you, there you go. And I think that's a frustrating thing. Anyone who's taken psychedelics uh, knows somewhere in your heart. You just know, like, well, 
if the majority of people on the planet understood that we're all pretty much the same person, then a lot of the things that we're currently uh, dealing with that are, are destroying the planet and causing untold catastrophic suffering in the world would go away. I don't think that's just hippie, naive thinking. I, I just think the reality is we're just, we haven't quite evolved into that realization yet. And then you see the military, of course, all of the experimentation with hallucinogenic drugs back during the 50s, 60s and 70s, where they were even putting the absurdly potent hallucinogen BZ into aerosol yeah. form, which could render someone just like a fucking raving lunatic, a babbling yeah. loon for 80 plus hours. Just, I mean, no wonder they didn't <laughs> try to harness that because it was so unuseful and could have just gone completely off the radar of what yeah. these military people were trying to achieve. But I think you just brought up a really interesting point, which is like there was this kind of psychedelic revolution. There were all these baby boomers that took psychedelics, were dosing themselves, and then a lot kind of reverted back to kind of reactionaries. A lot of people embraced Reagan and neoliberalism yeah. and left us to take over the mess. And it kind of goes back to Ram Dass's point about simply having these experiences doesn't just permanently change you. Like it's about harnessing what those experiences are and and realizing how to stay in that mindset and not just putting it as like another thing that happened to you in the distant past, I guess. Right. Yeah. Like, yeah. Like in this, you know, they call it integration, you know, and the, the idea is that you're not, you're, you're supposed to integrate these experiences, uh, not just keep having them over and over again. Of course, I, I, I understand that point of view. I also understand the hedonist point of view, which is like, okay, you go fucking integrate. I want to get high. It's fun. <laughs> You know, I don't need to integrate, all right? Like the Alan Watts thing of like, once you get the message, hang up the phone. It's like, shut the fuck up. <laughs> Alan Watts, you're rude. Like, no, when I'm talking to friends, I'm like, all right, got the message. And then you slam the phone down. So I, I think that hedonism is, a, you, is it's okay to take psychedelics just for fun. But to Ram, to, what, to your point and what Ramdas was saying, it's it, I think one of the uh, problems that they identified early on in uh the psychedelic uh the first psychedelic revolution was that these effects are not they don't seem to last mm -hmm. as long as what they were hoping and initially i think they really did think they'd stumbled upon especially with lsd a kind of uh very healing powerful uh medicine but over time uh, it, you know it didn't really uh it, the effects didn't last and yeah, so this is where Ramdas uh, went to India. Actually, a lot of people are confused about you know why he went to India, but he went to India with um, LSD that was created by uh, Owsley. Have you ever heard of Owsley? I have not. But is that like the white lightning pill? That Owsley was this famous chemist that there's a like Steely. He was such a great LSD chemist that Steely Dan <laughs> wrote a song about. <laughs> that that's how good the LSD he was making was. <laughs> Listen to Kid oh, Charlemagne. It's a, it's a song about just what you're talking about. And um, uh, so he made a special batch of LSD for Richard Alpert at the time. 
because he wanted to get the perspective of people from a, a more spiritual, less materialistic culture, India, about what are these states of consciousness? What does it mean? What is it? And so he was going around, you know, giving this substance to all kinds of people until he met his guru, Neem Karoli Baba. And he got to, you know, come face to face with, uh, you know, an awakened being, the real deal, the thing you hear about in books. He met it, the, the you know, the thing. It completely changed him. And for the better. And, 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 you know, from that encounter, he came back to the West translating a lot of Eastern ideas into a way we could sort of understand. And this is what I love about him it is and it, to me, one of the things, one of the like primary teachings that came from him is that we work on ourselves so we can help the people around us. In other words, if you get too caught up in the global problem, geopolitical uh, issues and all the stuff that people like you and I are deeply absorbed in and attracted to and, and, and get, at least I get completely like wrapped up in it. Then you can feel very frustrated, anxious, despair, pointlessness. You can just find yourself suddenly uh, some kind of like a nihilist or something. But if you bring it all back home, and just sort of look at like how you are in your own life and in your own community and then start there or what Jack Cornfield says, tend to the part of the garden you can touch. Then all of a sudden, I think you become a sort of pixel in this image that could actually look like world peace. Cause it's not going to be any heroes anymore. Any one person who pulls this off, it's got to be you the individual wherever you are right now and 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 it's got to be you taking those little steps whatever it may be in your own life to try to be a little more peaceful because that's what we're talking about right we want world peace absolutely i mean this is like the the age-old question for me because I mean, I love that you incorporate so much of spirituality in your work, and it's wonderful and inspiring, and it's a relatively foreign world to me because I've barely explored it. And sadly, I feel like it's totally severed from the political world, especially left politics, because there's this kind of cynicism about it. And unfortunately, there's this kind of proliferation that has separated the self from the collective with a lot of like new age um, movements around me, especially in LA and stuff, it's kind of hyper individualized where there's there's this kind of disassociation with the spiritual nature that you're talking about, which is we are simply part of this beautiful, you know, connective tissue that exists everywhere. And instead, it's just kind of like, I'm going to just push out all negative negativity and just focus on manifesting my own reality and getting the Porsche in my driveway and all that shit. And it's just kind of this perverse adaptation of like this beautiful thing that you're speaking of yeah what are your the okay so the the there's a i think cynicism it it it, it it's across the entire political spectrum but can you sort of talk a little bit about the le leftist cynicism because it is a, a it seems to be its own unique kind of flavor and um i, I would love to hear your thoughts on why why that's happening like why so many so many people 
so many people who like I think have really beautiful ideals. Mm-hmm. You know, this idea of equality and uh, this idea of of um, socialism and all these things that that are. I get it. It's like we why if we're all the same person, then it would make sense that we should figure out a way to so that all of us get the food we need, shelter, medical care, etc. But how is it that the wind and the sails of people who seem really like uh, wrapped up in those ideas is, is so bitter? Like, <laughs> well, you know, what, what, is ha- what has happened? Do you have any theories on that? Well, I think part of it is just core atheism kind of driving a lot of like raw um, material analysis about that the way that the world works. And so I think that that has been associated with socialist ideas for a long time is just like, you know, like just looking at just straight up like this is this is what we know to be true. And these are the material conditions of our reality. But I think that another part of it could be what I just spoke of, which is kind of this rejection of the of what this new age type thinking that incorporates a lot of the spiritual foundation that you're talking about, like kind of being turned off by the hyper individualism of it. Okay. And so there's this kind of, yeah. you know, there's two currents, which I mean, I, yeah, I feel like there is kind of this rejection of this new age spirituality because it's just like not rooted. A lot of people are just like, this isn't rooted in tangible reality, which to me yeah. is, I feel like we can open that up because like you just said, there tends to be a nihilism and a cynicism that it, it, it is also like something that turns people off when it's like, you're not right. embracing the beauty um, and the optimism that's needed to really inspire people to, to join a collective. If you're not angry, you're not paying attention. <laughs> you know, that, that, I have that my bumper sticker, baby. You do? No, 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 no. That would be fun. But, but uh, it would be okay if you did. I, I, <laughs> I, I get it. I mean, I, th- I, I like, and I think that the, you know, identification of what uh, Chogyam Trumpa Rinpoche, a, a great Buddhist teacher, called spiritual materialism, is dead on. Which is, you know, the uh, because we, you know, it's not your fault that you were born in. If you were, if wherever you may be, if you're listening to this, it's not your fault. If you were born into capitalism, you were born into capitalism. That's not your fault. If you were steeped in, you know, ideas, if your language itself is like a market language and it's not your fault, this is just the way you are. You were, you were conditioned into, you know, into, into these ideas that maybe at some point would have seemed completely bizarre and, and, and crazy, but but these are this is what's making the world uh, function the way it functions right now, for for better or for worse. But the point is, like, because of that in the West, especially, what ends up happening is like you you start hearing these like ideas that show up in the New Age movement and show up in Buddhism and Eastern uh, or whether what do they call it, the wisdom traditions, and you you you're trying to run all those ideas, which are fundamentally um, I guess you could say uh, annihilatory and, and, and uh, to your ego, uh, but you're running it through your ego that you've developed in a capitalist model of things. 
And so that's where spiritual materialism appears. That's where you've so, we've figured out a way to, instead of deflating the ego and the or what's called self-cherishing, uh, we've somehow inflated it. We've gotten it even bigger. And that's when that's what you're talking about when you run into the people mm-hmm. that make you think, oh, my God, this is all complete bullshit. It's yeah, you know what you're running into is someone who, who came across this stuff and then, you know, figured out a way to use it to make them more colorful. You know, it's or like the way I love watching bird mating dance videos, mm-hmm. you know, they just mm-hmm. figured out a way to like add it to their mating dance. And so that's spiritual materialism. And but again, I think what the problem is, is like, yeah, you're 100% spiritual materialists are out there, but who cares? That's not you. Right. It all, it goes back to, all right, how can we right now, as we are, begin to, in some small way, contribute to this idea of world peace? And, then, you know, God forgive me, this is, I'm embarrassed to say it, but when I was at Burning Man, I remember <laughs> some hippie at Burning Man said to me, do you think world peace is possible? And I thought about it. I'm like, yeah, I do. And then he's like, all right, well, if you really believe that, then for the rest of your life, everything you do should be trying to achieve world peace. If you don't think it's possible, if you think we are doomed to this never ending war that will eventually probably lead to complete annihilation of our species, then yeah, you're off the hook. But if you have the slightest whim that just maybe it's possible, then and you're not doing something, it doesn't have to be big. I'm not talking about big (laughs) bullshit, but just something. And to me, that something is, can you get a little more peaceful? Can you dust yourself off after you have your temper tantrum and your ego flares up and you become a complete asshole? Dust yourself off, forgive yourself and try again to be a little more peaceful in the world. You know, I, to me, that's it. That's what it all boils down to. No, you're right. And, and was that man, Jeff Bezos, who spoke to you at Burning Man? <laughs> I love all this. Yeah, all this <laughs> and then he went and ate an iguana right in front of me. Um, no, you ran into Bezos at Burning Man. I was man. there, I dude. Oh I was, there. I'm the one who told him that. And then he went and told you that. No, I mean, I, I totally hear what you're saying. And I feel like this is again, like the big, question in life because of course i believe in world peace of course i believe in the ideals that i fight for and i wouldn't be doing what i am doing if i didn't but that goes back to self instruction like and i always just tell myself duncan i'm like i don't have time to work on myself i need to prioritize this and that and yeah i know that i unless i do the work everything i'm putting out in the world isn't what it could be and should be because it's ultimately coming from a place of insecurity and fear but there's but it's like so intimidating like thinking of sitting there with my thoughts and meditating on the daily sounds actually like my biggest nightmare and yeah. i guess just talk about your entry point into the world of spirituality and like what i guess just bring us through like maybe speak to an experience that you've had that really does prove the power of this practice and speak to its benefit and potential yeah well of meditation i guess i'm speaking of sure yeah, i think it's at least number one it's like at least in my experience you you know you watch the fucking movies when when someone's being depicted as spiritual or like fixing themselves or whatever through meditation 
and it really at least it portrays it to me in a, in a in a really ridiculous way just the way the movies portray everything in a ridiculous way um there's a great book called the wisdom of no escape by pima children and the book starts off with her saying a lot of people they meditate because they want to be better and that's starting off your spiritual path with a kind of aggression against yourself so so already just from the you want to meditate but you're at war with yourself you're 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 almost you know amplifying this war with yourself um because you want to change you want to be better you all these things that you are hoping will happen through meditation well in tibetan buddhism one of the words for meditation is gom which means self-knowing or you know becoming familiar with yourself that's it just getting to know yourself that's meditation now so for me you know i have real problems with like anger i get really angry and um uh it's 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 awful it's a, it's afflicted me for like a lot of my life and so so for me like all the spiritual stuff especially now that I'm a dad, it really isn't very pretty or like it's, it's not even fancy or, or any, anything um, cool. It's really gritty and it's really slow. It really is slow. And I disappoint myself all the time. Like I'm always failing. I'm always like getting like losing my temper or getting like selfish or, you know, getting like, like not wanting to be where I'm at or, you know, trying to escape reality. But, but the difference, even though it's a, a really tiny difference is that um, I'm able to like start over again mm. in a way that I, I, I wasn't before I ran into a lot of these ideas. I can start over. Like I can try again and try again and try again and try again. And in fact, when I first met my meditation teacher, David Nickturn, uh, and the reason I decided to start working with him is he said, we had this like formal meeting. Um, I guess you could call it a meeting. And he said, I just want you to know that my teacher told me, told, told, I want you to know before we get going, my teacher told me that this is hopeless. <laughs> <laughs> he goes, and I think he meant it. And so, now that was when I'm like, okay, this is the guy I want to learn how to meditate from. That's incredible. And so that's to me what it is. It, it, it's, it's a, um, it's a very down to earth, very basic, very boring way of being, of getting to know yourself. And, and at least in my experience, I am, it, it really hasn't done much. But the little that it has done, I think, has saved my life. And, um, yeah, so, you know, uh, there's a great meditation teacher, Sharon Salzberg. And she said that she was, I don't know, you know, giving a class and, and a little girl said, mindfulness is what keeps me from slapping my little brother in the face. <laughs> and, you know, that's that's great. That's really good. That's good. I think people have these high expectations of being enlightened or something. I, I certainly used to have that, but you know, this can just be a thing that gives you a, a few milliseconds in between hitting send 
on that shitty text or email. And that can alter the course of your life, you know, for it really can. And and also, if you do hit send on the shitty email or text, then this can be a thing where you can uh, not completely hate yourself for giving way to your basic aggression. It's very instructive for me because I'm so reactive and emotionally charged and I do have anger issues as well. And it does seem like this would help me just to at least just take a step back and just say, is it worth talking right now? Like, is it worth saying what I'm about to say? It's easier said than done. And I think it just comes along with just, like you said, the notion of forgiveness and the shattering of this constant huge expectation like notion of just having expectations that you can never meet and and always will lead to disappointment unless you understand that everyone comes with their own reality their own perspectives and baggage and it will never amount to what you perceive and build them up to be and Mm. and that's why buddhism i guess in general is just so such a beautiful philosophy because it centers so much around everything that we're talking about and just the need to embrace change, you know, of course, understanding that the root of all suffering is the resistance to that change. And it's just such an important question that I feel like is unanswerable unless you seek out these acts yourself, you know, like how do you find peace? How do you find peace when one day you can feel the best you've ever felt in your life and the next day everything is shit and you just want to die? And then that yeah. cycle just continues over and over again until you do die. Yeah. Yeah, right. Well, yeah. And, and you know, the, I think th- that that's a, a really great analysis of it and that it doesn't have, like, it doesn't have to be so tight, you know, mm-hmm. and, and when you're, the, the problem is, is, is it's very easy and it's, it's an obvious thing to like, you see yourself in the mirror every day. You're in your body. You have to deal with your thoughts every day. And so in this experience, it's, in, it's incredibly easy to start believing that you are your thoughts or that you are your habits or that you are your predilections or that you are your addictions or that, you know, the, the, or, or it, it, so it's like it gets in Buddhism, it gets compared to different grades of sandpaper, right? So at first, like uh, Jack Cornfield talks about, he's another Buddhist teacher. He, he joined a, uh, he became a monk. And the first thing they asked him is, where are you in your body? And so this is a really great question, by the way, because if you start looking for yourself in your body, then you will find yourself like in this same predicament as like people in those ghost hunter shows. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like <laughs> you're, you're like, try, you're like, show yourself, but you're talking <laughs> to you and, and, and you'll realize like, Oh my God, I, I don't, I can't really find a, a, a solid me in here. And, and for some people that's really uncomfortable because uh, you know, we want to believe that we have some essential identity, some, we do have a self clearly. I mean, there's something going on here in relative reality. We have a name, a social security number, foods we like, foods we don't like, a way we walk, a way we talk. 
things with it that are maybe we're allergic to, things we're not. But you know, remove any one of those things, we're still a, a we're there's still a me. And so, anyway, the point is the the as you begin this analysis, and part of that analysis is meditation, self knowing. You begin to realize, like, oh, right, there, there seems to be um more space here than I I thought. Like that, the 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 solidity of my uh, anger, the um, the tightness of my uh, rage or fear or anxiety or, or whatever it may be, it's not quite as solid or tight or, 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 or real as I initially thought. It, it actually seems to like, even in the deepest of suffering, it's not quite as there as, as you might think if you are running away from it, which is why it's called self-knowing. The idea being like, okay, maybe that what happens if instead of distracting myself with my work, distracting myself with whatever my particular addictions are, distracting myself with whatever it is, I just sit with the pain for a second. What happens? It's it's the literally the opposite. It's the opposite of the way you would you would deal with any other kind of normal pain. Like if a bee was stinging you. Right. You're not going to sit and let the fucking thing sting you. Like, let me sting, <laughs> you know, but personal suffering or um, dukkha, as it's called in Buddhism, um, it, 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 it's, it's it, the first noble truth of Buddhism is not, not life is suffering. A lot of people think that it's there is mm-hmm. suffering. It's a big difference. One is associated with life. The other is just like, look, here is suffering. That thing that you've been feeling that if you pay any attention at all, you realize like, wait a minute, that thing I'm feeling, it's not really connected to something in my external universe. It's crazy when you realize that. Like, sure, people annoy me and sure, this shit will happen that doesn't meet my expectations or whatever. But the feeling itself it seems to like not be necessarily related to the external environment, right? So there is suffering. Here's this thing called suffering. Um, here's this thing called suffering. Stuff here is not quite right. One of the translations of this is wobbly wheel. I really like that when you're riding on a bike and the, you need to put air in it. This is the experience of being a human in this realm that we're in right now. It's like riding a bike with not enough air in the tires and it's fucking wobbly and shit doesn't really quite work out here over and over and over again it doesn't work out you to me the funniest thing is when you've gone on the same damn like the the same commute for a year and you're still angry at the traffic like you know what i mean (laughs) you know exactly what to expect yeah, but you're matter. but somehow you're thinking this will be the day that there's no traffic. <laughs> but it's only always been traffic, right? So this is why one of the root causes of suffering is called ignorance. Because you're 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 looking at things in a way that they're just it's not the case. So to get back to the idea of suffering, it's like this suffering, it's just here. There is suffering, it's here. And um and then you get into the second part which you briefly mentioned, which is well why is there suffering? And and the answer is, well, there's suffering because of attachment. Now, 
this, it works on every single level. Grades of sandpaper. Yes, it's, it, you're, you think everything's changing and you want to keep things the same, but it gets even cooler than that. You're attached to your fucking story. You wake up in the morning. I don't know if you've ever, ever had this happen. I'm sorry if I'm talking too much. I don't know no, if you've ever had this You're in a, you've gotten a terrible fight with your partner. Maybe that's never happened to you, but it does to me. And you wake up in the morning and you don't remember the fight. You don't remember the anger. You don't remember anything. You wake up and it's the best day ever. You're like, oh, this is, a, oh no, oh fuck. <laughs> Like, you know, the apps start appearing on your iPhone or whatever. You're like, motherfuck. But for a second, you had put the story down and you were just in the moment. There was no more. There was no story. And you experienced what in Buddhism is known as fundamental goodness. This, the, the, a kind of empty, beautiful, perfect, incredible experience before the story kicks in. And then when the story kicks in, now you've got friends enemies you've got people you can kill people you want to save things you need to do and all this stuff so attach we're attached to our story deeply attached to our story and it gets even you know the sandpaper gets finer and finer like we're attached to the way we process reality you look at a uh, you know letters on a page if they're in english or whatever language you speak and you automatically turn those into words you know you instantaneously take all these disparate phenomena and weave them together into reality around you. And it gives the illusion of there being matter, stuff, dense, real things to interact with. Um, this is attachment to. And so, so this is where Buddhism gets really interesting is because through this practice, you might catch these little glimpses of a kind of space, a kind of emptiness is what I, it has a lot of names. I think emptiness is a confusing way to describe this, but in this expansive spaciousness that seems to exist underneath the habitual way that you assemble reality into the story of who you are, there's this incredible, vast, non-dependent emptiness. And that emptiness is uh, where compassion comes from. Yeah, and how we and how we even measure what happiness is like you see those studies of people who are the richest people in the world you know or people who have over like eighty thousand dollars in income and then the happiness just becomes less and less the more material wealth that you need and desire yeah. to accumulate and then you look at people who are living in some of the poorest regions in the world and they just have bare necessities and they are probably much happier in fact they are much happier, I'm sure, in many ways than than people living in this country, Duncan. And it really just shows you that everything's kind of on a relative spectrum like that. Yes, yes, exactly. And, and you know, you look, wherever you find yourself on that spectrum, you know, it's you're still facing these basic problems. You're going right. to get old. You're going to die. You're going to uh, probably like deal with some kind of disease or something like that. But, yeah, I know what you mean. It's like this is a uh, yeah, this is a. A, a very confusing world that we find ourselves in and that confusion causes a lot of suffering but um it doesn't have to be that way necessarily it you know i think that's really an exciting thing if especially if you if you're like if you find yourself like habitually sort of clinging to some kind of story about something that happened to you in the past or what you're worried about is going to happen in the future 
I'm beset by this shit. I mean, I have to like remind myself of this all the time. Like, oh, it's just a story. I'm I'm telling myself a story, and I'm and 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 I keep telling myself the same stupid ghost story over and over and over again about what I have and what I don't have, what's good about me, what's not good about me, what's good about the people around me, what's not good about them. That it's a lot of processing power to do that, and so if you just you know, take a little vacation from that story. Uh, it's pretty wild at what you'll experience, which is why we love looking at our children. They don't have that story. They're not like waking up and looking around and reminding <laughs> themselves of their debt or the people who broke their heart or the awful things they did or whatever. They're fully here. And, and, and it, that doesn't mean they're walking around with some like goofy, fake spiritual smile on their face. You know what I mean? They freak the fuck out. Right. Everyone, they go through these like wild emotional oscillations. It doesn't. So, so, you know, it doesn't mean that there's like a, a, a like the kind of the, the fake bullshit, phony peace thing necessarily happening to them. They're just fully immersed in the world and it's good. And, you know, and, and the only difference between us and them is that we've just become very attached to the story of who we are and why we're here and what we're into and what we're not into and what we have and what we don't have. And the moment you know what you have, you've got to defend it, right? Even if it's not material stuff, even if you're like, I am a good person. And the reason I'm a good person is because I wear my mask in the airport. And then now that you've decided this is what makes you a good person and this is who you are, naturally, all the people around you aren't wearing the mask are bad people. And so now you're at war. You're at war because not because there's there's real danger out there necessarily, uh, but because of the story you're telling yourself. You know, it's a it's a really uh, it's a really exciting realization I've had is that I don't necessarily have to like believe this, that story. I keep and all, and like it's so interesting because we have the individual myths that comprise of who we are as an individuals, and then we have the collective myths that underpin our society and the system yes. that governs us. And it's so fascinating when you strip all of those down too. Yeah. And let's talk about bicycle day, Duncan. You mentioned the wobbly wheel. April 19th was bicycle day, of yeah. course, commemorating Albert Hoffman's accidental discovery and self dosing of LSD on April 19th, 1943. This fucking chemist ingested a compound derived from the ergo fungus and he felt so disoriented that he rode his bike home where he experienced the world's first acid trip. Duncan, (laughs) Duncan, I took DMT when I was 18. My brother put headphones on me and just said, smoke this giant bong without telling me what it was. But I have endless gratitude for him because of it, because it helped shape my reality from the point forward. I was completely unafraid of psychedelics and it kind of jolted my semi lost sense of that, you know, that inborn faculty of visionary experience that Hoffman describes. Like we all possess this as children, but we lose it as we mature because it's not nurtured. It's not cultivated, especially in a society like ours. And I think it's a great tragedy with so many human beings growing up without that sense of artistic expression, natural curiosity, and kind of that retention of what you're talking about, this almost childlike fascination and yeah. being present with the world. Yep. Yeah. 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 Um, well, good. this is, again, uh, you can't lose it. 
you just think you lost it. It's it's like losing yeah. your keys if you're a hoarder or something. It's like <laughs> under a bunch of mattresses and diapers and a couple of dead cats, but it's there. <laughs> you can't lose it because it's what you are, actually. But uh, but clearly, you can like y- you know um, you can forget all that. And so now this, I, like I, I I know Hoffman's story so beautifully. He, uh, I think he had prior to the famous. Uh, bicycle day story Hoffman had I believe like accidentally touched some of this stuff gotten a really low dose and the description was like that's he, he suddenly felt like he was a kid again he's out in the woods or he, he remembered mm-hmm. this specific feeling um, that uh, we had you know that was just normal when you were a kid uh, Garden of Eden it's before you know you leave the, the garden or, or the, the, it's when you're just there um, yeah yeah and so um then he he overdosed himself on acid i'm not sure exactly how many micrograms but i i don't think enough people talk about the fact that hoffman didn't have like the vaults of airwood hoffman didn't have like any anything to reference for the experience and i just can't imagine how terrifying that must have been because I'm sure you've been there, Abby. I, I know like that moment where you're in like hour nine of the trip mm-hmm. and your walls are still melting and you're like, I'm not sleeping tonight. Like this is not this, this. And if you if you go, if you, if you let yourself trick yourself, you might think this is going to last forever. I'm never going to come down. And then you're with your friend. who's like, don't worry. You'll come down. Here's a Xanax or whatever. You know, don't worry. It gets, it won't last forever. But Hoffman didn't have that. So that, right, right. There was no you know, frame no, of reference was, at all. <laughs> wife was giving him milk. Like they were trying to <laughs> Sounds eat, horrifying. Like, oh, you're just drinking milk and like you you don't know that it's going to end necessarily or maybe you don't know if you're alive or whatever. You know, so he, you know, um he went through his own kind of pharmacological crucifixion on April 19th and because of that, you know, uh LSD uh, is now, you know, an uh, 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 an integral part of so many different communities and um, so many different cultures and so many different uh, individual lives. And that, that's a beautiful thing, you know. I, I, I will, I will. All of us who have benefited from LSD will feel a perpetual uh, gratitude towards Hoffman. And one of the things I learned relatively recently from Michael Pollan is that our default mode network, like that main operating system that is our ego overseeing the rest of our bodily functions and linking together all of our thought patterns, is what becomes deactivated when you take psychedelics. Like yeah. I, I used to think it was the other way around that, the, you know, our neural network is just on firing on all cylinders and for the. F- but it's really not that. It's that for the first time, that becomes quiet. And there's something in our brain that is telling us that it likes these things, Duncan. You know, mushrooms, I think when you ingest mushrooms, your body treats it like you're ingesting a poison and you're processing the mushrooms and you expel them or excrete them. But things like DMT and I guess LSD, I didn't even know this before, but your body treats it as if it's open. I mean, it opens its receptors when you take DMT and apparently LSD locks into a certain receptor perfectly. Like it just is a puzzle piece that just locks right in even better than serotonin does. Like, how do you fucking explain that? How do you explain the fact that DMT is this energetic 
current, this magnetic force that is being coded in all of this organic material and it's present in our brains and it's this message of higher consciousness that the earth is providing directly to us. Yeah. <laughs> fucking crazy. Yeah. Well, yeah. I, you know, co- compassion takes so many different forms and you know, I think these substances are a kind of molecular compassion that, uh, you know, I, I don't know if you get into Gnosticism that much, but the idea that we're in a kind of like simulated reality that's being conducted by this thing called the Demiurge that wants to keep us all kind of trapped here. There's weird parallels in that uh, something descends into that hell realm reality and actually in buddhism like you you hear stories like there's there's the shakyamuni buddha which we are so lucky to have in our particular uh incarnation and like if you're born into a if you're born into a time period where a buddha has shown up at all it's considered incredibly great karma but uh there's also buddhas in hell um there's there's incarnations of buddha that show up in hell and i think the buddha shows up in all kinds of ways and Potentially, one of those ways could be um, as LSD, you know, and and <clears throat> it's not always like that. I mean, certainly sometimes LSD has done nothing for me other than like make me want to like die, go to sleep, or but certainly it's it's a, you know, I Alex Gray, the great visionary artist, I heard him say it's like your 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 neurons are hugging the LSD mall. They don't want to let go of it. Once they have it, they want to keep it in as long as they can, which is why it lasts so long. So surely our bodies know what's healing, you know, and, and just bec- the only reason we, that seems crazy or like some nutty woo woo bullshit burning man, hippie thing to say is because we just went, we're in a prohibition. Like we're in a terrible prohibition. Um, that's, that's hopefully ending. But, you know, we've just gone through the dark ages, basically, when it comes to these substances. So we've got a lot of conditioning that makes us think that there's something evil or wrong or self-destructive or, like, permanently maddening about these substances when they're really quite beneficial, especially if you if used with, like, a great therapist. Yeah, and it's crazy to think that it hasn't even been 100 years since the discovery of LSD and it's also kind of fucking crazy that um, there's an acid shortage, I guess, for several the last several decades because of the arrest of one of the main suppliers, William Pickard, who was also a Buddhist priest. <laughs> he was one of the main LSD yeah. suppliers, and now it's it's kind of hard to get because of how heavily regulated it is by the government. But I think that we are entering a new wave of hopefully there is some optimism out of the world of psychedelics. As you mentioned, there's ketamine therapy being administered. That's really interesting things. There's MDMA therapy. And then, of course, there's also kind of the resurgence or reemergence of psilocybin. Um, I'm not sure how how much we can get our hands on LSD if if the main supplier has uh, dried up up the well. No, I bought LSD stocks. It was one of the greatest moments. I went on TD Ameritrade. You can buy stocks in companies that are manufacturing LSD right now. Okay, well, so, great. Get, um, uh, <laughs> everyone listening, get get in while the market's hot. Um, yeah, just Google psychedelic <laughs> stocks. Like it's yeah, you're right. Um, basically, like the uh, some of the materials used to make LSD are uh, really difficult to apparently very difficult to obtain. 
Uh, and because of that, yeah, it, it sort of went away. But what's really great is there's all these analogs out there too. Mm-hmm. You know, there's all kinds of uh, things that aren't quite LSD, but they are. And also there's the dark web, you know, so, um, but you need, you know, obviously you have to be so super careful. And in fact, I think that, um, you know, right now, especially again, I had my time in the sun with, with these chemicals. Like Mm -hmm. I have taken LSD so many times and have taken psychedelics so many times. Uh, and I I feel really lucky that I, I did have the good fortune of like taking real LSD and knowing what that's like. And, um, but it's a really cheesy thing to say. And I understand for my psychonaut friends out there, feel free to roll your fucking eyes. I certainly did when I heard that. Oh yes. But there's, you can experience that very thing that you love about LSD without LSD. And, um, and that goes back to what we were talking about earlier, fundamental goodness. I mean, to me, like, you know, when you first start taking LSD, it's amazing. The fireworks show is so cool. The, I don't know what you see, but, you know, I would see uh, sigils and runes and weird angelic writing on top of everything. And the breathing walls, you look in the mirror and your face transforms all the, all this stuff, depending on how high a dose that you've taken is. But then at some point you experience the thing, which is what, Pollen, I guess, was talking about. Suddenly, this part of your brain that has been instantaneously or nearly instantaneously forming your identity, forming your story, forming your reality, forming everything you're afraid of, forming everything you're not afraid of, forming the whole thing, it just goes on vacation. And you are temporarily liberated from your little self, the little I. And you experience that expansive unit of consciousness that is possible with psychedelics. And that's the feeling of going home, coming home. You're home again. You're home. That's who you are. That's what you are. But then it's like, it's like in the movies where they like hit the museum guard on the head with a gun or whatever. Like you're that part of yourself kind of like wakes up and it's like, wait, oh, fuck. No, you're not everything. back to being a you again um for for all that's great about it and all that's terrible about it so the idea is like we need to figure out a way to make friends with that uh museum guard or demiurge or whatever you want to call it you know like we don't have to we don't have to turn it into an enemy because that's what it would like it would like us to be at odds with itself it seems to feed off of conflict or whatever but you can actually just let it keep doing its thing and but through this sort of a slower process, that's the fucking problem. Through this very slow process, you can maybe just expand the perimeter of your identity a little further out and a little further out, so that that museum guard becomes uh, increasingly insignificant. It is possible. I mean, that's why nobody wants to talk about the last two noble truths of Buddhism <laughs> because we're all so familiar with suffering, but. The last two are, you know, you don't have to suffer. There is an end to suffering. It can actually end. 
Very well put, Duncan. I know you only have a couple minutes left. I have longer, by the way. I have a little bit longer. Oh, if you great. Keep going. I wanted to kind of wrap this conversation up by talking. I wanted to acknowledge a man um, named Ween, Ween, Wine. Win. Wow. <laughs> like Steve Wynn. Of I love Vegas. Wynn. Great. Win, Wine, Win. Okay. Win Bruce. Win Bruce was a climate activist and follower of, and I apologize if I'm saying this wrong, Thich Nat Han. Thich Nat Han. Okay, great. Um, since his death, I mean, basically he self-immolated in front of the Supreme Court a couple days ago on Earth Day, and he was a Buddhist. And since his death, friends from his meditation center in Colorado have come out and said, no, he was not crazy. He was a beautiful, wonderful person, apparently had been planning this action for over a year to protest government inaction on climate change. And I just wanted to say his name and highlight what he did, because number one, his action is kind of being erased and he's being painted as a lunatic by, of course, the mainstream media. You know, they just report, oh, another man self-immolated, just like all these other crazy people who kill themselves and whatever. No context at all. Nothing about Earth Day, nothing about who he was, what he was trying to do. And also his community is trying to honor what he did. One friend called it a deeply fearless act of compassion. And of course, I'm not advocating self-immolation here, but it is interesting that this this political and let's wrap it up everyone all at That's once why I had to go. <laughs> <laughs> um, but of course this was this was something that we all remember from uh if you don't remember it from the vietnam war then maybe you remember it from rage against the machine of buddhist monks self-immolating in opposition to the u.s backed south vietnamese government during the vietnam war and it's just it's an incredible thing to erase because at its core, it is the ultimate self-sacrifice. Um, and one of the monks that he associated himself with had a quote that he said, self-burning is somehow difficult for the Western Christian conscious to understand. The press spoke of suicide, but in its essence, it is not. It's not even a protest aimed at only alarming at moving the hearts of the oppressors and at calling the attention of the world. To burn oneself by fire is to prove that what one is saying is of one of the utmost importance. There's nothing more painful than burning oneself. To say something while experiencing this kind of pain is to say with the utmost of courage, frankness, determination, and sincerity. And that's the not Han that said that, um, Duncan. And of course, it just reminds me of death, of course, everything that we're talking about today and what I think is the best episode of Midnight Gospel and of your podcast, and I think a lot of people can agree with this, is the most important conversation I've ever heard about death and loss and all of the suffering that goes along with that. And that's with your mother. And you have confronted death head on, both through your cancer diagnosis, the loss of your best friend and mother. And so let's just wrap it up. I guess I wanted your take just on this man, what he did, and any closing thoughts on just this bigger picture. Yeah. Well, I think it's great that you're saying his name and letting people know uh, why he did that. Um, I, I, I think that right now, people, it's important to really understand that, that people are will it like people are doing that like you know to get to that point where you're going to self-immolate um it's not like you sort of believe there's a problem you know what i mean it's not like he's like well maybe maybe there's some something that is not being addressed in the world so 
uh, yeah, I, I think that it's good for people to maybe honor that being by going deeper into who he was and what he wanted to say, what was under, you know, the, when, when, when anyone self emulates like that, it's, it's a, it's a kind of really intense invitation to take a look at what he's trying to express. Um, yeah. So I, I, I can't, I have nothing else to say about, no, that's, about fine. That. I, that's the first thing that I, uh, no, that, I think it's, I, I, I heard think it's something beautiful. about him being a Buddhist, but <laughs> I, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't hear anything, uh, more than that. And I hope his community and his loved ones are, okay, are doing okay right now and are, are sort of, uh, are, 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 you know, it's the most intense thing you can do. I mean, it literally is like the most, and it it is absolutely insane. I mean, it's just a really, really fucking intense thing. You know, there's so many stories in Buddhism that are crazy. Like you, you, if you read the past lives of the Buddha, it's wild. Some of these stories, uh, like one of them briefly, he's the Buddha in, in a past incarnation is some noble person and is walking, taking a walk with his attendants and sees a tiger who is starving and doesn't have milk for her cubs. And so he tells his attendants to just keep going and they'll catch up with him. And he lets the tiger mother eat him so that she'll have milk for her cubs. There's like all kinds of crazy stories like that of this um, ultimate compassion, the ultimate like self-sacrifice, not for, I mean, you know, when Bruce was trying to get people to look into climate change and, you know, but the, the stories of the Buddha, it's like, like even less than that, just like giving yourself completely <laughs> a tiger. <laughs> <laughs> Like just like just for the so the cubs could have milk and so, um, this is I think why there's this direct connection between emptiness, that shutting down of the default network or the unitive consciousness, and compassion, which is, um, if you are not self cherishing so much and if you have somehow gotten to the place of recognizing your impermanence and the emptiness of things, the result isn't nihilism necessarily or despair or um, cynicism like some might expect if you're really invested in your identity, but rather it's this kind of spontaneous radical kind of compassion that can uh, show up in like profound acts of self-sacrifice. So yeah, that's a good reason to, to meditate, I guess, or to uh, tend to the part of the garden you can touch, to keep going back to your own life and what's around you and what, how are you part of the war? You know, how are you part of the violence? How are you part of the never-ending aggression happening in the world? Um, And how can you maybe lighten up a little bit? Because if you can't, then we're fucked, right? Like, I don't mean you or me or anyone, but you, the individual. Like, if you can't figure this out, like, 
if you can't find a way to be a little more peaceful around the people that you love, sacrifice a little bit more. You know what I mean? Obviously, being a parent is not self-immolation, but it does invite a kind of sacrifice, doesn't it? It does invite you to go deeper and deeper in a kind of selflessness, deeper and deeper into a kind of foregoing your own temporary desires or whatever you're wanting to satiate for those around you. It invites that. And that, and, and I think that's why it's a great teaching, you know? So I, I don't know. I think like maybe, or even if you don't want to Google why when Bruce emulated himself, maybe the, to honor him and his community, you could just try to be a little more compassionate to the people around you a little bit more. Cause you know, again, I think climate change and pollution and all this stuff happening into the world, all of it, it's directly related to the solidification of the individual identity and placing that individual identity and your individual life as more important than everyone else on earth. And so, uh, yeah. So any kind of small little step in the opposite direction, I think, doesn't just honor people like Wim Bruce, but all the people out there who self-immolated, who were assassinated, who were beaten to death, who um, committed suicide because they were completely broken from their attempts at like helping the world. And, you know, I'm not going to self-immolate. In fact, I'm not going to do much. I'm pretty lazy. I'm sorry. But damn it, you know, for Wim Bruce, I'm going to try to be a little kinder when I get home tonight, a little more apologetic for places I've gone wrong and a little more loving to the people around me. I think if we all do that, maybe there's some hope. And Wim Bruce and all the people like him didn't set themselves on fire for nothing. A little more forgiving, a little more empathetic. Duncan Trussell, what an incredible conversation. Check it out, everyone. Watch Midnight Gospel on Netflix. And more importantly, go subscribe to the Duncan Trussell Family Hour. It is the best podcast in the world. And it will completely blow your mind, of course, other than Dost. Um, Duncan, thank you so much for coming on, spending your time with us today, and sharing all of your wisdom with us. Thank um, you. <laughs> stay on the line, everyone. We're going to take some calls. Duncan, you're the best. Thank you so much. Um, I want to take calls. Let me take a call. All right, calls. let's fucking do it, Hell dude. Yeah. Will, I hear, wait, will I hear them? Or, I'm yeah, sorry. you'll hear them. You're going to hear them hard, dude. Okay, we're gonna We're going to take a couple for you. We're going to take uh, Johnny, who has been... If you if we accept your call, make sure you take yourself off mute, and please try to keep your question or comment short so we have time for everyone, and we are valuing Duncan's time. So I'm going to take Johnny. Uh, come get yourself off mute, Johnny, and let us know what you got to say. And where you're calling from, please. Greetings. Greetings. I Hello. am calling from northern New Mexico. And, uh, yeah, dude, I just want to say thank you both so much, Abby and Duncan, for everything that you guys are doing. I'm, I've learned so much from the both of you. And it seems in your own context like it's not related. But then when I hear you two talk, I see and hear that it's, you guys are on the same page, and it's so interesting because it's really hard for me to integrate the funnier aspects, the kind of cosmic giggle that's always there if you got the right ears and eyes for it, and then all the bullshit that just keeps getting worse all of the time. And so I just want to thank you both for <laughs> sitting down and 
laughing and but you know having the whole spectrum of experience so i really appreciate it thank you that was great johnny thanks Thanks, johnny thanks for your call um next we are going to take uh connor are you there come off connor connor habib you're is on that mute. Connor Abib? Connor Abib is here, bit. but he's on mute. Maybe he put the phone down. Maybe Connor! he's doing something else. <laughs> hey, there he is. Ah, Connor! <laughs> Sorry. I had to. Uh... <laughs> What's that I had to. Uh... I had to call in because it's like wow. three of my favorite people that I never am in the same room with. Hello, everybody. <laughs> hey. Talking about well, getting high. Hear your voice, man. Why don't you move back to the United States? What are you doing out there? You're in. You're 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 like Inya. You're living in some Irish <laughs> No, I don't know. Abby's been Abby Abby and Mike have been to Ireland and they can confirm the fairy presences here that I'm sorry, that you just cannot get in the US. Like you've gotta go walking through the green glens of Ireland to uh to feel why I'm here. I mean, it's pretty intense. <laughs> it is true. I've seen them myself. <laughs> yeah, so I just I I I'm glad you guys were talking about what you were talking about as well because of course like I mean people go I mean obviously Duncan like people want to come to you for crazy psychedelic content but like the thing with Abby is if you sit down and have a conversation with Abby over dinner she always ends up talking about like machine elves and like <laughs> <laughs> mind bending mind scrambling yeah. consciousness altering shit and like and ufos and stuff like that so it, i'm glad you guys are talking about that <laughs> yeah this is a great i'm so yeah also abby you're the greatest interviewer of all time oh, i mean it's just yeah, like dude. you're so good at what you do i'm gonna fucking quote your ass on that <laughs> please do. feel free Listen, you guys can definitely move on to people that have, you know, don't have uh, the ability to be on with you guys. I just wanted to say hi and just be in the room with you all because I love you both. And it's just nice love to you. be talking. Yeah. Check right out Against point. Everyone, right? With Connor Habib. It's <laughs> your book coming <laughs> we got out. got it, Abby. Have to be on five times. <laughs> Check it out. Connor's podcast is awesome. And Connor, you're coming on here soon. So stay tuned for that, everyone. That's right. Get, stay tuned for Connor Habib's appearance on Dosed. And uh, I, I had to give everyone a sneak peek. I, did, I apologize to everyone in the queue. I did bump Connor to the top of the line because I saw your face in there. Um, so oh, now, oh, thanks, Connor. So now we are going to get to uh, Connor, we love Ian. Um, Bye, Connor. We're going to get to Ian, who was next in the queue, but Connor superseded him. But Ian, come off mute. Tell us where you're calling from and what you got to say. Uh, hello, can you hear me? We can. Yes. Oh, hey, uh, um, I'm calling from Edinburgh, Scotland. Sweet. Uh, yeah, I just wanted to say thanks so much. Uh, you guys um, have been listening to Duncan since like his podcast started in like 2010 or whatever it was. And Abby, mm-hmm. like, you've been such a big influence on me as well. And um, you talked about um, taking DMT when you're 18. When I was like 16, so like over 20 years ago, I took. Uh, mdma for the first time and i started to be here now um, oh wow and it was like just <laughs> every word was just like true you know like it just uh i felt everything about it just the truth it was just like a huge synchronicity um and then you get back in the real world and you forget all of that um but i just wanted to thanks for the conversation tonight about how you can exist in that world and then this world as well you get dragged back into this world yeah um, i just sorry i'm nervous um 
Well, also I have two kids and, and another one on the way in like three weeks. Congrats. Congratulations, Ian. Hey, thank you so much. Um, so I really appreciate um, you guys being parents and uh, what you have to say about that because it's it's difficult, you know, it's difficult to be in the world um, and have children um, with the way the world is. Um, but it does bring you back into that sense of being here now. Um, yeah. Which I appreciate. So I just want to say thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks a lot, Ian. Yeah. The, you know what? I just interviewed Dr. Andrew Weil, the uh, doctor. He actually was the reason that Ramdas got kicked out of Harvard and he's the coolest guy ever. But when he was at, like, they're all at Harvard together and he sort of wrote all these exposés on how the, um, how, uh, Leary and Alpert were like partying with the students. And anyway, that's not my point. What, what he recommended uh, is uh, news fasting. Like take a break from the news fast. Like stop looking at it for a few days and see what happens. Abby, you probably can't do this because of your job. But I got to tell you, especially as a parent, like anytime I just turn it off for just a few days, uh, my mood changes in the most extraordinary way and it's been really useful as a parent to just like because what are you going to do what are we going to do what are we going to do i don't know putin's phone number (laughs) no it's totally true i actually haven't watched cable since the election and i don't go on twitter nearly as much as i used to and it really has calmed me because twitter is designed not only the psychological manipulation uh, to tap into our deepest insecurities and the notion that we we are not in the know even though we're looking constantly at news it's a very it's very counterintuitive to how our brains are supposed to work and how we're supposed to take stock of information and it actually makes us learn less and retain less and so i totally agree with you it's really important to take a break and just be present baby be here now for your kids and just do whatever you can because at the end of the day that's all you can fucking do man and you got to just alleviate that that constant pressure over yourself to solve the world's problems right the world's always on our shoulders and really that's (laughs) it it can't be true all the time okay so chogim chopa ribeche one of the things he said that i always think about especially as a parent is you you can uh whatever your ism may be communism capitalism socialism whatever your thing may be um it could be wrong. It could be right. But if you want to make lasting change in society, find a way to bring harmony to your own home and to, to teach your children this harmony because they'll carry that into the world with them. It's so basic. It's so obvious, but truly like, I don't know where you're at as far as what military technology you have at your house. But I've got a bow and arrow. That's not helping anyone in Ukraine. I don't have anything I could send to Zelensky, you know. But the um, but one thing I think any parent can do is is just keep returning to this idea that there is a way to to create increasing harmony in your own home, and the, and and that if enough of us are doing that, it's not going to be a quick fix. And who knows, maybe we're going to be harmonious as we wander down some apocalyptic highway, sucking in radioactive ash. But like to me, a direct, pragmatic way to work 
with the darkness in the world is to try to bring light into your own home and then and and don't give up if you keep failing every single day because maybe you'll get it right eventually duncan i have several javelin missiles that i bought because i saw a raytheon commercial here in my home so i'm i'm ready to amp it up baby holy shit those <laughs> new raytheon they're javelins i couldn't help crushed. myself i saw the commercial and i was like fuck well i need one of those what um, color did you get <laughs> purple did you get jet black oh purple i, I got almost- pink for breast cancer awareness <laughs> <laughs> but no, it's so true. Like this, this it, it is the most fundamental fucking thing ever, right? The reason that our society is the way it is because kids are being raised in dysfunctional homes. It's like it all comes back to how do we raise our kids? How do we nurture the children that we're bringing into, the, into this world? Duncan, do you have time for one more call before we wrap it up? One more call, and I, I might have to rush through this one. Go for speaking it. Of kids, I got to go back and read stories to force, but I so enjoyed this. Oh, my God. I wanted to stay um, stay online. So, yeah, one more. One for more. Sure. Let's do it. Jonathan. Okay, Jonathan, come off mute. Tell us where you're calling from. Hello. Wrap it up. Five, four, Jonathan. three. You're about to get booted. You're about to get Yo. Oh, there you are. Hey. Yo, what's up, you guys? What's up? What's up? I'm calling from uh, Santa Cruz, California. I just wanted to say I'm a huge, huge fan of yours, Duncan Trussell. I love you too, Abby. Um, yeah, man, I've been listening to you on uh, since like the early days of the Joe Rogan podcast, and it blew my mind when I heard you talking about Ram Dass on Joe Rogan. Trying to tell Ram Dass, I mean, uh, Joe Rogan about this spiritual stuff, like, was so, made me so giddy, because I had my own journey with Be Here Now and Ram Dass and everything, so... Uh, cool. I just want to say thank you. Thank you guys so much. I'm a huge fan. And I uh, I just want to say thank you for the call. It was a great conversation. And I uh, I gained a lot from it. Thank you. Thank Jonathan. you. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening, everybody. And thanks for having me on, Abby. You're the best. Thanks for going on my podcast. And uh, hopefully I'll see you sooner than later. All right, man. I'll see you soon. Take care. Tell Forrest I said hello and goodbye. And thank you again, my friend. Thank you, my friend. Bye, y'all. Thank you. This has been so fun. I'll I'll see you around. Bye. Goodbye, Duncan. Until next time. You guys, I really hope you enjoyed the one and only purveyor of ancient wisdom and philosophy, as well as just the incredible ability to find humor in everything. I appreciate him so much. Duncan Trussell. Everyone check out the Midnight Gospel, the Duncan Trussell Family Hour. And thank you so much, everyone, for tuning in and calling in to dosed. You're listening to the sound of the Colin app tripping out and uh, playing Jonathan sing hmm over and over it again. Kind of works with the beat. for it's no like, reason. It's a just, cool like uh, mix. It's like hmm. tripping out. Speaking of that, if uh, you're listening on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, join us on Colin Live. Colin social podcasting app. <laughs> Find it in your app store, Google Play. Uh, normally it works better than just having Jonathan pop in and out with little sound effects, but check it out. Check uh, the upcoming shows on our page there, Dosed with Abby Martin. You'll see all the upcoming live rooms so you can join the conversation and do cool things like cut clip visualizers from it, which I encourage everyone to do if there's something you heard in this episode that you liked. 
Got some great, incredible guests coming up for you in the month of May, so stay tuned. You can also find Abby Martin and Empire Files on social media for all of the updates for Dosed. And I'm just going to take you out with some more music from our friend, Televangel. Televangel.